On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, this is Steve Balton. You are tuned in to My Turning Point, where this week I am joined by UK band Wolf Alice. Really enjoyed this conversation about recording in Belgium, margaritas in LA, touring with Queens of the Stone Age, and much, much more. So hope you enjoy this one as much as we did. Yes. How are you guys doing today? Yeah, good. Thank you. How are you, man? I'm doing well. I was just telling Kirsten, or Kirsten, except for the fact I'm three quarters asleep, but I'm excited to talk to you guys. So, you know, hopefully it wakes me up. What time is it for you? It's 9.30, but, uh, you know, I've been keeping a crazy work schedule. And so I was literally up transcribing a Mod Sun interview at 3.30 in the morning because I just couldn't sleep. So, you know, that's why. But it's all right. I'm excited to talk to you guys. So it'll wake me up. And, you know, it's funny. I was just watching the Smile performance on Corden this morning. And that definitely kicked my ass into gear a little bit. How are you guys doing today? <laughs> yeah, well, I was just um, signing some posters and stuff. Wait, sorry, it was a little faint. So you said you're writing songs right now? Oh, no, we're signing some posters. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> writing songs, signing posters, you know, it's all writing, you know, in a way. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's so interesting, though, because I talk about this with artists all the time, and it's funny, when you come back into the swing of thing after a gap, it's like, you know, have you found... Well, all right. <laughs> it's such an interesting thing, because at normal times when there's a three- or four-year hiatus... It kind of feels like riding a bike to get into the whole cycle again of promoting and being out there and doing everything. Then you throw in that wild card of COVID and it's like, wait, no one knows what the fuck is happening. So how are you guys adjusting to, you know, having shows again and being on TV and, you know, all of this, all of these things that, you know, are quite the, uh, you know, they're, they're a bit to begin with, you know, as it is. And then you throw in COVID and it's just... <laughs> Total mind trip. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot going on. We haven't had the privilege of playing in front of people properly yet, but we've done sessions and stuff like that, which has been a really nice outlet. It's been great to be able to play together and kind of perform in a way together. Um, we're desperate for some real proper gigs. But yeah, like you said, it's weird to kind of get back into that, that mindset of all things go at all times. And I think coronavirus really does put a bit of a crazy twist on your brain in that situation. Well, it's so interesting because I've talked to so many musicians during this time and it's funny because, you know, there are the ones who were basically on the road at the time and then the ones who were in the middle of a hiatus or a break anyway. And then you take that in and like I said, you know, so it's like they thought that they would be back out on the road in 2020 and, you know, so it was the unexpected delay. So for you guys, were you imagining, like, was there an earlier timeline to release new music and you thought that you would be back on the road sooner? Or was it always planned that you would have the new music out in 2021? Um, yeah, I think we did have, it was maybe supposed to all be, have got done a bit earlier, but Corona or no Corona, we kind of took longer than anticipated anyway. And so... 
um, the kind of cancellation of tours for the, all the foreseeable future kind of worked in our favour a little bit just because we would not have been ready with these songs. Um, so at first it was like as much as we missed playing live, we were kind of like, oh, this is good because we've got time to focus on getting this record right and not rush it. But now we're just very itching to get out, yeah. Well, but it's funny because now that there is a timeline to to play stuff and you have gigs lined up and everything with Reading and Leeds, it's I was I was talking about this with someone that you know, it's like when you do a long road trip, right? You drive from I'm California based. So you drive from San Francisco to LA or LA to San Francisco, and it's amazing how it goes so quickly. And then that last 20 miles, that last 30 minutes, yeah. it just feels like fucking forever. It's so like now the- posters. <laughs> when you sign fucking 7,000 posters, the last <laughs> you <feel> mammoth. <laughs> well, I mean, it's funny. When you sign 7,000... Now, do you have to do those in one sitting? Or, you know, and do you have people, like, coming and, like, massaging you and pumping you up, like, bringing you food? Like, do they let you up at least? We were just saying how we needed someone to come and bring us takeaway. We need an incentive. But <laughs> at the moment, all I've done is go to the shop and get a 7-Up and some peanuts i don't feel like that is the best motivational fuel when you were in the middle of signing seven thousand posters that's what coronavirus has done to us uh, we get our kicks out of peanuts and seven up <laughs> wait so but is that going to be the official sponsor of the tour uh yeah the, the sugar-free one would be great if they could sponsor me all right. And I like the mix though, too. Like it's, it has to be the combination, right? It can't be the one without the, this is really funny actually in all seriousness. I was talking with Billy Corgan not long ago and, and I'm, I don't know if you've ever met Billy or not. Nope. <laughs> I, I, I love Billy. He's, he's really sarcastic and he was doing an interview with Zane Lowe and he was talking about the fact that, you know, the success in the nineties and he was talking about how, he was just being kind of a sarcastic asshole as he is wont to be. But I say this as he's my friend. And he was like, yeah, he's like, you know, Zane was asking about the band success in the nineties. And he's like, you know, it's the right mix of water, the right drugs. He's like the right chicken tikka masala. He's like, I don't know what it is, but it's funny because then I started joking with him about having the right foods that fuel the right artist. And we started talking about this in regards to other bands. So was there a food or a typical meal that fueled this album. Oh my God. You know what? So this was a residential studio and it was fantastic. And the guys at ICP are amazing. And the food was brilliant. And the kind of like environment that they put us up in was fantastic. But there's a, quite a consistent vegetable called chicory that kept coming up. And the guy who produced our album, Marcus Drav, seemed to create, have like some kind of anima, anim, a, a, a negative relationship with it. And I, I think I had just heard him predominantly talking about whether chicory was on the menu or not. And it seemed to plague him more than whether the songs were going well. So chicory, that might be the least rock and roll thing I've ever said, that chicory would have that much fucking involvement in our album. But uh, that one sticks out if the question is what food was knocking around when Blue Weekend was being made. Yeah, sure. That's interesting though. Okay, wait. So, so, but it's funny because, but now was it something that fueled the record or was it anti the record? Because it almost feels like, you know, from what you're saying that chicory was not a popular thing during this. Maybe like, you know, when you like first meet someone or you 
like first enter like a new team or whatever and you've got like a joke that you kind of latch on to to like bring you together icebreaker yeah chicory was that for us so it probably helped fuel fuel the, the album there much. weren't any drugs around so it was just talking about chicory <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think 7-Up and Peanuts is a better sponsor. You know, I'm not going to lie. I, I feel like I've never tried chicory in my life. And now I just am curious. And I'm going to have to try this just because I don't I don't know, though, if it's a particularly English vegetable because I don't think I've ever even freaking heard of it. Yeah. Well, I think it's... Is it like a Belgian thing? Yeah, we did the album in Brussels. I think it's big in Belgium. Oh, that's right. I remember because on the Corden thing you were talking about or he was asking if it was just like the movie in Bruges. And it was, yeah, like I said, but with chicory instead of murder. (laughs) (laughs) All right, it's funny. So, I mean, in Belgium, I think of like the beer and the chocolate, but it was chicory, huh? Yeah, Yeah. you could get the beer and the chocolate, but we went for the healthy option. You know, I'm always a big believer in how environment affects writing. So I don't know if the record was written predominantly and, uh, and you can tell I cannot talk this morning for lack of sleep, but I, I will try that again, enunciating. Was the record written primarily in England or was it written when you were in Belgium? No, yeah, very little of it was written in Belgium, but it was all, you know, like we've changed kind of how we envisioned the songs a bit whilst we were in Belgium and, you know, it was all recorded there and I think that, the environment did impact the outcome of the songs mainly just because like there were like very little distractions and uh, quite a lot of time more time than we never had before and I feel like that probably influenced the out, uh, how it came out but not necessarily the writing well, that's interesting too because I've talked about that with other bands and it's funny I mean you know, when you're uh, when you're a hometown band, right, and you try recording, life gets in the way. You know, you yeah. have your distractions, you have friends to see, you have family, things like that. But I've talked about this with bands who traveled around the world to write or record, and it becomes a very isolated experience. And I don't know if that was the case for you guys, but as you say, there were less distractions. I don't know if that was also partly due to COVID. But, you know, for you, do you feel like you had more time to focus, concentrate on the record because... You weren't at home because, you know, you, it wasn't like, okay, cool. Now I'm going home to the house tonight and, you know, I'll be back at six in the morning or 10 in the morning or whatever it is. Like, you know, you're in this very isolated space. Yeah. The intention was to, we were seeking that kind of focus, you know, that's why we traveled there. We did the previous album in Los Angeles, which I have to say probably had more distractions than you can ever imagine. But (laughs) we went there for that isolation and that kind of focus. But it was then like magnified times ten by the coronavirus situation and the fact that we were, you know, only able to just be be uh, well. The guys were only able to be there with the record. All right, now, now, wait a second. I'm curious though. Being an LA guy, what were uh, what were the biggest distractions here in LA? I think you can put two and two together. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, we were staying in Echo Park. It was great. We had some good friends there. And I, I mean, I think it's communally one of our favorite cities to be in. So mm. the distractions were really very, very lovely ones. And England doesn't do margaritas like yeah. that part of the world does. I do a good margarita in Tottenham, but yeah. not quite as good as 
some of the delicious Mexican squats you guys have got. You know, and I'm trying to think too, I don't think I've ever seen chicory on a menu here as well. So it would have been a completely different album if you had made this one in LA. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but now it's interesting. Were there songs on the record too? It's funny, uh, Ellie, you mentioned that it kind of changed a bit in the recording, which is of course expected. So are there songs that, you know, and I talk about this with artists all the time too, right? When you're making a record and especially when you're in the midst of it. And then of course, by the way, you're in an isolated space. So you're really in the midst of it. You're focused on it. It often takes time to go back and figure out what the record is about. So when you guys go back and listen to Blue Weekend, are there things now that stand out or that surprise you that you know you didn't notice being so focused in on making it? Uh, no, not really. I don't think. Uh, I mean, there's like lots of uh, like hidden gems in this album that are like makes it nice to just return to even as someone who was part of the process of making it. Um, but like, even though we were so, like things that maybe we always stumbled upon and now when I look back, I'm like, oh, we didn't need to worry. Like it sounded, sounds great. And like those things, if it was not even like a huge bit of that song I don't know why we got so hung up on things like that I can you know that the process was full of those like oh no like this reverb is just not right when like I think if it had been normal times we would have been like whatever this, this reverb's, reverb's fine, fine. this <laughs> reverb is fine <laughs> well you know it's interesting as well I like the way that you say things that you got home you know like things that like little hidden gems uh, you know, I was fortunate enough to interview Daniel Lanois, the great producer, and he was talking about, you know, what he calls happy accidents. And, you know, where basically you make a record and, you know, just things happen in there that you don't anticipate. And those end up being some of the best moments. So for you guys, what were some of the the happiest accidents when you go back in there, those little hidden gems? Um, um, happy accidents. Accidents. I don't know. I think happy accidents is a tricky one. A happy accident can be maybe going into a vocal take and not performing it in the kind of way that you wanted to, but you like the character you took on there and you're like, oh, okay, maybe that gives it a different life and a different color. Or maybe it's, you know, the sound of a uh, guitar take that's rough around the edges and maybe not necessarily in time, but gives it that movement and that color that takes it away from it all being snapped to a grid and kind of... I like that someone made the analogy once of like when you put, when, when an artist puts the dots in the pupils on someone's eyes, does the like picture of the portrait come alive? And I think some of those things where it, it doesn't feel so rigid and it moves around, gives it like a vitality. Yeah. So it can just be in the takes and the performances, you know, I, I think quite a lot of the time it's, when I think I've played the bass take that I want to use is not the right thing when I listen to it back and it's not for any rhyme or reason. It's for character. Um, so it's hard to pinpoint it. You know, there wasn't like a time where someone fell down the stairs and we were like, that sounds great for a bass drum. <laughs> but, um, I know what you mean. And it's definitely an important aspect of recording. And I think it's really important for bands to kind of keep hold of that and know that everything that perfect doesn't necessarily mean good. So it's interesting. Let's bring this to the stage then, because, you know, as you say, you are chomping and, and now it's coming up. I mean, are there songs that, you know, and obviously too, look, when you play songs live, they change. They morph. Audiences yeah. make them their own, you know, and of course the songs can extend and stretch out. 
you know, so are there songs from this album that you are particularly excited to bring to the stage and see how audiences respond? Yeah, I think uh, there's a particular song on the record that I had an attachment to since Ellie sent it over. and uh, It's called How Can I Make It Okay? And I've loved that chorus for so long. And I've, I think one of the things I love the most about going to gigs is seeing people sing something in unison. I love it. I love it in a lot of different environments. I love it in like when you take your grandma to church at Christmas, I think people singing together, like, and I think when I go to football matches, people chanting together, I find it deeply moving. And that song, I'm like desperate to hear people sing back. Um, yeah, for me, that one is the big one. How can I make it okay? Ellie, what about for you? Yeah, I agree with Theo. Um, um, but yeah, all of them really, to be quite honest. Um, like the beach one has like some call and response stuff, so that'd be fun to hear people if they learn the words or whatever, and then like play the greatest hits, like obviously will be a really fun one to play live. It's quite punky and it's very fast and yeah, that one will be fun as well. You know, it's interesting too, because I've talked about this with so many artists as well during this last year. And it's like, you know, looking at the Reading and Leeds lineups, <laughs> excuse me, you get to be both, you know, a lot of people have talked about, you know, both sides, the excitement of being back on stage, but then also the excitement of just being in the audience. So, I mean, I'm curious, you know, is there one artist or one song that you are looking forward to just losing your shit to as a fan as well? Oh, on the, yeah, on the Reading and Leeds lineup, there's Queens of the Stone Age who we've yeah. played with. And I've got a Queens of the Stone Age tattoo. And I've loved them since I was, you know, since I was since those formative days of like 13, 12, 13, where you get, you know, enamored with bands. And uh, I think I've been in every mosh pit I can for them. So that one would be amazing, yeah. Yeah. All right, wait, now I'm fascinated with this. When you toured with Queens of the Stone Age, did you let Josh see the tattoo? So this was a big thing for me. <laughs> I was like, I don't really know my preconceived notions of his character meant that I was nervous to, sh to, to, to be on tour with him with a tattoo. And it turned out on the day I got there, that uh, a the guy who was doing security for them was on a tour that I was on. And I think I pissed him off before, Mark Dawson, who's actually one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. And he was like, I'm going to let Josh know you've got that tattoo. And I was like, oh, God. So we were on a southern state. So we were playing in like Florida and Texas and stuff. So it was hot. And I was wearing a fucking long sleeve shirt most nights. Most nights. Uh, and then eventually it came to over one of many tequilas that I had that tattoo. And he was so unbelievably cool about it and was like saying that how it means so much to see people, you know, celebrating his band in that way and I thought it was going to be like haha you're an idiot and he actually just kind of said everything you could ever want to say to a 14 year old fanboy so it was like, you know what it was one of the best experiences probably of my life musically gone well the reason I asked that very specific question it's funny is uh, Matt Johnson from the band The The you know them? English band? yeah so I have a tattoo from the album Dusk that was my first tattoo Love that album. The first time I interviewed Matt, I was way too nervous to tell him about the tattoo because I thought he would think that I was like some weird psycho fan. 
And so that's why I asked that specific question. So later on, I did tell Matt about the tattoo and he thought it was awesome as well. So I'm glad that you have the balls to tell him uh, about that. Now, now, Ellie, do you have a tattoos of any bands or if you were going to get a tattoo of any artist, hypothetically, who would it be? Uh, no, I don't. Um, um, I don't. Which I guess is just another way of asking. Sorry, another way of asking who was that formative band for you when you're 12 or 13? Because I understand exactly what you're saying. It is those formative years that you form a bond with an artist so much that you would consider the tattoo. I don't know. I, I'm not really like that. I don't really... I just don't imagine that I would ever do that, really. So, I don't know. I always liked the um, the horse on the cover of White Pony by Deftone. So, maybe I'd get that. <laughs> cool. Now, I want to come back to the writing of this for a second because, you know, I asked you about things that surprise you in the record. But that oftentimes applies to writing as well because writing is such a subconscious thing. So are there things lyrically that you go back and listen to in Blue Weekend that kind of surprise you or, or things that come out where you're just like, I didn't even know I was thinking that? Yeah, I think like The Last Man on Earth is a bit like that for me. Like in the same way that like after the Zero Hour was a bit, I was like, oh, like I was definitely going through something that I couldn't really put into words or was not really tangible. And like, it's almost as if the song kind of like is there to tell me and you know yeah i feel like it's quite like a multi uh i don't know what the word is but like there's like various um interpretations like even for myself that and like i remember i forget some of them and then i remember them and stuff and it's that so every time i listen to it, it feels kind of new well, it's interesting, though, that you say you forget, because also, I mean, what happens with songs is they morph, they change. And, you know, your experiences with songs change. I'm sure. I mean, it's interesting for both you guys. Are there songs that you go back to from like the first album that now you hear them in a different way? Because, of course, a decade later, you're in very different places in life. Like the other day in our rehearsal room, we were playing Visions of a Life, which is the last song on our last album, Visions of a Life. <laughs> and um, I was like... I was playing it and then we stopped and I was like, that song is so weird. Why did we write that? <laughs> I can't ever imagine writing anything like that now. Yeah, I know what you mean. It's like, yeah, it's a weird song. And I mean, I'm not saying it's bad. I wasn't like, that's really bad. I was like, that's really strange. <laughs> so it's funny when you go back and hear it, does it almost feel like a different artist? Yeah. It did the other day. It's been so long. <laughs> But it, that's an interesting thing, too. That's funny because conversely, there are songs that you can go back, I think, and have a new appreciation for that, you know, like, OK, you haven't listened to them in a while. And that's an interesting thing as well. That came up a lot during COVID because, you know, look, most artists never go back and actually listen to old material. They have no interest in going backwards. But obviously, during COVID, you had a lot of time for artists to do like, you know, anniversary -ish reissues things of that nature. And those are the only times that artists go back. So when you start rehearsing, that's also an opportunity to go back and listen to stuff. So for you guys, then as you went back, were there songs that, you know, in addition to, you know, the weird songs where you're like, wait, why did we ever write visions of life? Are there other songs that you go back and listen to and be like, wow, that actually holds up really, it's really cool. And as you say, by the way, I understand you're saying, you're not saying it was a bad song. Yeah. It's just kind of a weird song. So are there those ones though, that conversely, you're just like, well, that's really cool. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I, I think, I can't think of any off the top of my head because we haven't really got into the deep dive of putting a set together, you know, where you do marry old and new and kind of get that right flow. But I think to speak to that is one of the coolest things about being in a band is how listening to something that you were involved in seven years ago can speak to you in a different way and bring out different emotions. And I think that's super cool how it's one of the best things about music, you know, how they take, and they, that changes, that happens for me as a listener as well with some of my favorite songs. I'll go back and it all kind yeah. of resonate with me in a totally different way because I'm 29 now and I've got, you know, I feel I've experienced this and that has changed the way I thought about that. Or like things that you maybe thought were embarrassing, now you don't care about yeah. what's embarrassing or not, so you're like, oh, that was actually really cool. All right, well, wait, now I'm curious and we'll wrap this up in a second because I know we only have 30 minutes, but, uh, you know, as a fan, I know exactly what you're talking about. That happens with me as a fan of stuff all the time. So what are some of the songs for you guys that as fans, maybe two songs for each of you that you've had that experience with recently where you go back and you hear it in a new way? For me, like, this is no, uh, not a, like, not a par on this band, but I like recently started listening to Girls Aloud again, the British pop group. And like, because they were played on the radio so much and they were like really treated as like celebrities because they were on X Factor or whatever. I feel like I just didn't pay attention to the songwriting of their early songs. And I, BBC Six Music did a like Twitter thread, which was like, what song does like the most musical U-turns and, and within the song? And it was like, oh, Biology by Girls Aloud. And I listened to it and I was like, this is 10 out of 10 songwriting. And like at the time, like, well, I must have been a, a very young girl and I didn't know and think about songwriting like that. And you just hear girls loud and like, oh, they're from X Factor and they're always played on the radio. You know, like treat, uh, yeah, it's really bad for me, but I didn't think about the songwriting. I just thought about them as like just a group or whatever. And I really like kind of sat and listened to the, you know, the twists and turns of the songwriting. I was like, this, this is great. <laughs> Uh, interesting. I don't know it. I think it was probably more of a distinct uh, British thing. So I'm going to go back and listen to it now. That was a very bit of like, they were strong British culture in the yeah. 2000s or whenever it was. Um, I listened to, uh, oh God, I think the album, the Willie Mason album was called If the Ocean Gets Rough. Mm. Uh, and I always used to like listen to that on a rainy car journey in the back of my mum's car or something when I was really young. But I kind of decided to pick out kind of the more of the little subtle political nods in it and stuff. And I thought that was cool. And it kind of like, I kind of was laughing at myself listening to these serious songs about like identity at a younger age. And I was like, that's sweet that that little fucking yeah. lame idiot thought he was that. You know that like when you're a teenager and emotions are just the tidal waves, everything is super important and you're just this ball of, crazy um, emotion I think yeah. and I just liked thinking about me then in context with those songs which are actually quite subdued kind of like country folk ballads and stuff and yeah that was the last time I could think of it it's probably not the best example but well cool is there anything that you well wait we're going to wrap up on two questions one when you go back and listen to Blue Weekend all the way through what do you take from this album as a whole work I think at the moment, I, I 
can hear, and at the moment I feel very proud because it was a difficult process regardless of what's gone on coronavirus-wise and then that obviously would have made it even harder. And I just feel proud to see, to listen to everyone's playing and to listen to how Ellie's songwriting has kind of grown and I just can hear the strength in it and I feel like I can hear a competent band that I probably wanted to be in and I feel like I hear the band there and I'm really, I'm just proud at the moment. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like you can hear all four of our personalities in it as well, which is really nice. Cool. Uh, you know, it's so funny. After you guys do the tour, I'm so fascinated. I love Ellie, the, the, you know, when I asked you if there are songs that you go back and hold up as opposed to Visions of Life and you're, you're very blunt and quick. No. So post-tour, because I know it's been four years since you guys played, I'm so curious to hear what the songs are that you guys sort of, you know, because uh, again, all artists are perfectionists as well, but I feel like there will be those songs that go back and hold up, you know, and you're just like, oh, okay, we haven't played that one in a long time, but it was really cool. But I do yeah. appreciate the candor and the honesty of the just, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I definitely, well, even like now I'm thinking about it more, like even just the other day when we were playing Beauty and Convention, I said to you, I was like, this song's actually really good. And you were like, yeah, this song's always been good. And I was like, oh, I never realized. I think sometimes when your songs are single, it was when, a your, single. <laughs> when your songs are singles, you get sick of them. So then you can't hear them as they are anymore. Or like, I guess like you've heard so many people's opinions on them through YouTube and comments, stuff like that, that you just like don't have your own one about it anymore. And, you know, they become synonymous with maybe like the video that you, or something like that. And then, <clears throat> but so yeah, I was like, I heard it afresh the other day and I was like, Oh, this is, this ain't half bad, Gil. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think that makes sense. And I think as an artist, look, also, again, coming back to the idea, every artist is a perfectionist anyway. We know this. <laughs> so, of course, you know, it's you're going to be your own worst critic, but, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's funny. And also, you just got to give yourself, like, I feel like in the music world, like, there's a lot less... Um, what's the word, like compassion for age. Like yeah. people who like making songs when they're 18 are judged the same as people who are making their songs when they're 34. Do you know what I mean? It's like you're at the beginning of your life and your skill and your, 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 uh, what's the craft. Um, and people, they're slating your stuff as if like you, should know how to be the best at something immediately. And I don't know what other kind of career is on a par with that kind of thing. So like, well, sometimes I look back on my stuff and I'm like, oh, why did we put that? It's really stupid. It's bad. I'm like, well, because well, I was, I was a child. A child. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, athletics. That's the only other thing I can, I mean, athlete, anything that's in the public eye. <laughs> Why? Yeah, yeah. Or acting, obviously, too. I mean, but yeah. it's, it's true. I mean, it's, you know, but the difference is, of course, from music, uh, you know, it's funny. Like, I remember talking about this with Jared Leto about the difference between music and film. And right. it's like music, you're doing your own thing. You're expressing yourself. Film, you can say you were playing a part. You can sort of hide behind the director and whatever. So it's like there's more of a vulnerability yeah. in music. Yeah, yeah. 
Right. So when you put something out when you're 18, it's really fascinating. There's a wonderful, and I know we got to wrap up in a second, Kristen, but uh, there's a wonderful LA artist by the name of Maria McKee, who's one of my favorite artists of all time. And, you know, she was this artist in the eighties who, I mean, she was in a band called Lone Justice. They opened for U2, they opened for Dylan, they opened for Tom Petty, they recorded with Robbie Robertson. I mean, they were expected to be the next massive thing. And she's had a very long career, but they never had that success. But I remember talking about it with her once. And, you know, because in the 80s, by the way, it wasn't common for people to put out music at the age of 18. And I asked her years later how it felt to have music that you made when you were 18 out there. And she was kind of like basically paraphrasing. It was embarrassing as fuck, you know? it's, It's, you know, especially at that point where it wasn't, you know. But again, I mean, it's, you know, it's also interesting to go back and listen to it in the perspective of, okay, well, you know, it charts a natural course. And, you know, most artists also say albums are snapshots of where they are. So it's kind of interesting because then you can snap or, you know, chart the sort of direction. Yeah, I think it's very true that the, the snapshots aspect of thing is something I value because it's kind of like the most amazing catalog of our lives growing up in cohesion with one another. And I really value that. Yeah. Cool. What do you guys want to add that I did not ask you about? Because I know that we've gone over already. Fucking someone try and get us to Los Angeles. We need to come over there. <laughs> Please. I'm desperate. So you're going to trade in the chicory for margaritas? Oh, I will trade yeah. chicory for margaritas every day. Well, someone come, we'll play your birthday party, your bar mitzvah, your wedding, your funeral, whatever. I was going to ask you, Art, this will be the last part. What's your favorite venue in LA to play? Any of them, I don't mind. <laughs> I like the Fonda. I like the Mayan Theatre is amazing. Yeah, the yeah. Fonda. I'll play fucking anywhere, man. I'll play in your garden. You know, if I put that in Forbes, you're going to get a lot of offers. So there you go. Good. Oh, fucking yeah. Especially in Forbes. That's the right kind of people. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Thanks so much, you guys. Well, I look forward to seeing you in LA, uh, hopefully sooner rather than later. Hopefully oh, okay. Soon, yeah. Soon. Thanks you for too, your time. Man. Hey, this is Steve Balton. You've been tuned into My Turning Point with special guest Wolf Alice. Why choose proven quality sleep from Sleep Number? Because our Sleep Number 360 smart bed is really smart. It senses your movement and automatically adjusts to help keep you both comfortable. Plus, it's temperature balancing so you stay cool. It's even smart enough to know exactly how long, how well, and when you slept. And to help you get almost 30 minutes more restful sleep per night. Sleep Number takes care of the science. All you have to do is sleep. And now, during our Memorial Day sale, save $1,000 on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed Queen now only $19.99. Only for a limited time. To learn more, go to sleepnumber.com. Did you know that 75% of dogs are at risk or a carrier for a genetic health condition? Be proactive with your pup's health with an Embark Dog DNA test and get hundreds of actionable health insights that you can easily share with your vet. When you know your dog has an increased risk of a health condition, you and your vet can create a personalized care plan. Go to EmbarkVet.com and use promo code DNA, that's DNA, to get $40 off an Embark Breed and Health Kit or Purebred Kit with free shipping. That's promo code DNA to save today.
What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.